If only there was more Division Three near or in or around Southern California, I could totally just go move there. Uh, those 30 hours uh, were just fantastic. I just love Southern California. Holy crap. You don't want to be there when it breaks off into the ocean. <laughs> it's not really going to break off into the ocean, is it? Dude, the big one is coming. I had a my rental was a hybrid at least, so the the three dollar ninety five cent a gallon gas was not a big deal. I'm actually a hybrid owner, Pat. Little known fact, because who cares? Uh, it actually great, good good gas mileage is is a great thing. I'm when you move to California, you should get a Tesla. That that would be totally awesome too, assuming that they still make Teslas by the time I get to move to Southern California. My trip on Saturday included. Uh, included the 110, included the 105, the 605, the 210, and the 10. Friends, you take the Golden State Freeway to the Ventura Freeway to the San Diego Freeway until you come to the Slauson Cutoff. Get out of your car, cut off your Slauson, get back in your car. Well, you're calling it the 110, so that's pretty SoCal. Maybe this, maybe we'll have to ask Tur about this, but it's like a Cincinnati thing or a Louisville thing, something that they call it the, they never call it the highway or I-95, they're like, Freeway 95, something weird like that. Oh, I see. Freeway as a prefix. I was telling them that I was going from Occidental to Redlands for the second game of the day on Saturday. And everybody was aghast at how far that was. It's like, it's 60 miles. You know, if traffic was really bad, I could see it being a pain in the butt. And the route was a little convoluted, but it only took me like 90 90 minutes to get there. It was really not a big deal. I think I went... To I know I've been to Occidental and the Redlands, and I'm sure it was on the same trip, but I don't know if it was on the same day. But the campus at Redlands is pretty nice. Actually, both campuses are pretty nice. I like the Oxy campus as well. They're both really nice. Man, I could really get used to palm trees on campus. It's got to be the shoes. 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 The shoe is not the shoes feels great. I couldn't be more proud of our guys' effort, and certainly we talk about improving every week as our main goal, and we've been making that progress without having the results that we've been looking for being one and all on any given Saturday, and we are able to play a full 60 minutes, which is one of the things that we've been talking about and preparing for, and proud of our effort in all three phases, offense, defense, and special teams, and getting us to one and all and, and winning the Shoes rivalry game here today. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, where we're in our 12th season of podcasting and our 20th season of covering Division Three football. We welcome you to podcast number 210, where we will talk about week seven of the 2018 Division Three football season, the edition for October 8th, 2018. And you'd expect some pretty cool reactions from a team that just snapped a 33-game losing streak, won a rivalry trophy in the process, and that's what we had on Saturday when Whittier defeated Occidental 28-13 and won the shoes. You heard players' reaction as the game ended, comments from Poets head coach Mike Neal and the like. That's one place I spent time on Saturday on a weekend in Southern California. I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan. He's the Minnesota native. I'm the one who played D3 football long ago, so that makes you the Minnesota nice to my winning with nose. I'll, I'll take that. And yeah, we have a, a huge weekend of games to talk about, but there was a news uh, that came out early on Sunday morning that John Gillardi, the long, long time head coach of St. John's, died at the age of 91. 
Uh, Keith, I posted my thoughts on John's legacy in, in a story on D3Football.com, and I'll share some of those thoughts here as well, but I, I would like our listeners to hear your perspective. John, he always insisted you call him John, not Coach Gallardi. He took my call and talked with me before I even knew what I was doing covering D3. And the biggest takeaways between him and, and Frosty Westering, who passed not all that long ago, were that nice guys do finish first sometimes. And that's not to say they didn't have flaws or, or get angry, but they were such stark reminders that coaching football is about getting the best out of men or about getting the best out of boys as they become men. It's not war. So much about John was, was about fighting smarter, not harder. Not tackling in practice meant no injuries except on game day. Add that to having fun with the calisthenics before practice, and suddenly your players want to be out there because it's fun. They're not being beaten down. Underneath all that, they're still sharpening Johnny's players' tackling form and their other techniques, their mental toughness. It wasn't a total fairy tale. It was just smart. And between tapping into what made players love football and what made young men feel like a valued part of a team really made the Johnnies go. And that's why you see people swear by the red and white for as long as they live. I can say that Johnny alums really do pervade all walks of life here in the Minneapolis area. I was taught in high school by Johnny grads. I go to church with many of them. I've had job interviews with St. John's grads. And and by the way, it's always great that I can pull out a John Gillardi story I wrote in USA Today when I go to an interview like that. Uh, when I volunteered for a political campaign in the area a couple of years ago, the volunteer coordinator was a Johnny. Many more people have attended St. Thomas because it's a larger school, but St. John's and John Gillardi inspired more more fervor, I think, more pride in their alma mater. Well, while we're on the Johnnies, uh, they're ranked in the top 10. They had a nice 34-16 win against Bethel on Saturday, and Bethel was the team that John's 2003 squad beat when he became the all-time winningest coach in college football history, passing Eddie Robinson. Uh, they had to come up with a big defensive play after the Royals sandwiched a couple of touchdown drives around a three and out to turn a 20-3 game into a 20-16 game. Now the Johnnies come off that Bethel win, and they host the rival Tommies this coming week. You think that'll be an emotional scene? Boy, I can't argue with that. Uh, it'll also be great to see another top 10 showdown in Division Three football because we had three of those this week, Keith, and uh, two of them ended in shutouts, while the other was a big-time barn burner. I'm going to start with the shootout rather than the shutouts, and we'll talk about uh, number 5 Frostburg State winning at number 6 Wesley by the score of 35-34. The big takeaways here for me out of this game, Keith, were uh, – just some of the missed execution opportunities for Wesley, such as turning the ball over five times, missing extra points, just generally making mistakes in a game in which Wesley committed only four penalties for 31 yards. Those are the kind of mistakes that we often talk about Wesley committing, and they were they played a relatively clean game in that regard. Yeah, but the Wolverines blew leads of 14-0, 26-21, and 34-28, so they'll be kicking themselves for this one for a long time. It might be only fair, though, after last year's overtime affair went their way. Wesley plays four of its final five games on the road after opening with four home games in the first half of the season, and both Montclair State and Salisbury are currently unbeaten, so it's no lock. But if the Wolverines finish 9-1 and in the NJAC with a non-conference win over Delaware Valley and a one-point loss to Frostwork, they should be one of the first Pool C teams in. My other big takeaway out of this game is the performance of the quarterbacks. Connor Cox, the quarterback for Frostburg State, doesn't stand out offensively when you look at his numbers, and he doesn't have the tools that Kalik Burroughs has, but he made two huge plays in the fourth quarter that really impressed me. One is a play where he kept a third down alive with his feet long enough to heave the ball downfield. Now, there's two defenders in the area. He's uh, throwing it just, to, just short of the end zone, 
but there are also two Frostburg receivers there, and the ball deflected off one of them right into the hands of Christian Thornton, who took it the final few yards for a touchdown, giving Frostburg a 28-26 lead. Later in that quarter, though, Cox scrambles 17 yards on third down and 10 to get the ball down to the four-yard line before Jamal Morant runs it in for the final go-ahead touchdown. Keith, I use the term scramble for a reason because this run just wasn't pretty, but the room was left open for him to run, and he took advantage of it. Meanwhile, on the other side, Burroughs struggled, and his line on Saturday didn't look much different than it did in last year's quarterfinal loss to Brockport. This year, or this week, 15 of 30 passing, three interceptions, just two yards on the ground. While you were watching that, Pat, I was, well, I was coaching softball for the early part of the afternoon, but then I got to watch UW-Whitewater finish off UW-Oshkosh and then tuned in for much of the night game in Texas post-lightning delay. And while there are plenty of offensive takeaways, what a day for UW-Whitewater wide, wide receiver JT Parrish, three catches, 197 yards, two touchdowns, and what a stable of quarterbacks suddenly at Mary Harden-Baylor. The suffocating defenses won the day. I watched zero of the Whitewater game uh, and not much of the Mary Harden Baylor game because uh, it took place while I was on the 10 somewhere in California. Well, here's what you missed. Mary Harden Baylor running back Markeith Miller had a huge day, 29 carries, 190 yards, but he fumbled twice in the first half right around the 10 yard line going in, allowing Harden Simmons to keep a game close in which it could not string together first downs. Crew quarterback Jace Hammock had a big game on a big stage, but he threw an inex- inexplicable interception in the end zone in the second half. Mary Harden Baylor ruined three golden scoring opportunities with red zone turnovers and still beat the Cowboys by four touchdowns because their defense was that good. I have to think that inexplicable interception is a combination of words that probably is going to be really difficult to say together. Kudos for getting that out. Uh, meanwhile, I feel like this game has some top 25, maybe some top two implications that we should make a note to talk about later. Yeah, well, that UMHB defense was facing a huge challenge. Harden Simmons entered averaging 55.75 points per game, 633 yards a game. Mary Harden Baylor held them to zero points and 222 yards. I was most impressed by the front four. Kavon Shepard, Eric Wright, and Joey Longoria combined to register four sacks. Jefferson Fritz had a nice interception. To be honest, it was very similar to the UW-Whitewater defensive performance against Oshkosh. The Titans found their quarterback. They still have Dom Tortorello, Mitch Gerhardt, and they were hitting their stride offensively coming off a huge game last week against UW-River Falls. UW-Whitewater had allowed 19 points all season. They shut out Oshkosh, no points, 205 total yards, just 18 yards rushing on 36 attempts for the Titans, or 0.5 yards per carry. Whitewater also had three sacks, all from down linemen, two from Harry Henschler, one from David O'Gorman. On the offensive side for the Warhawks, Cole Wilbur remains an inefficient quarterback capable of hitting big plays. Alex Pete and the right Whitewater running game is adequate, but man, that defense. Yeah, we got to talk about uh, UW Oshkosh later uh, as well. We probably have to talk about Whitewater later as well. On the Mary Harden-Baylor-Harden-Simmons game, one other thing to mention is that the Harden-Simmons offense didn't even get within 37 yards of the end zone. But Keith, you know, I, I was, we, we thought good things about uh, their uh, other running backs in the, uh, in the stable coming into the game, but uh, it certainly looks like they missed Jaquan Hemphill in the, running, in the running game for the Cowboys. Yeah, I don't know how much difference he would have made on Saturday. Certainly, if you're a Cowboys fan, you'd, you'd, you'd have liked to have your best players out there for the biggest game of the season. But uh, Zazai Smith... I, is, is a bowling ball of a running back. They used Bryson Hammonds to, they took some direct snaps to him. So even though he's, I think he's listed actually as a slot back, he 
basically they they ran run plays to him as he took the snap as a quarterback, similar to how Mary Harden Baylor does with with Denarian Thomas. And they got some yards. I mean, they were able to uh, he hit a few slants over the middle, but Mary Harden Baylor they just rally to the ball so well. They tackle well. Their corners I thought had a nice night where they made they made plays on the ball um, when when there were passes in the air. And they come up and tackle and run support. And I'm telling you, as a former defensive back and knowing how hard that is to be responsible for a deep third and then still be able to come up and tackle a guy within five yards of the line of scrimmage on a third and short is is an amazing thing to me. So I I think that defense is playing really well right now. And it's something that voters nationally are going to have to consider when they're trying to figure out what's the team that the team they want to put number one on their ballot. We'll get back to the discussion in a minute, but I'd like to take this time to mention that the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is currently sponsored by Nobody. You could be reaching an audience full of decision makers in Division Three football, coaches who need new equipment, who can influence decisions to replace turf. I was at a place this week where the artificial turf that was on the field is 13 years old. That is, that's a customer for somebody. You can reach them by sponsoring the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Keith and I would be waxing poetic about your product right here before we went to break. Think about it and drop me an email at pat.coleman at d3sports.com. Keith wants you to know we have a gajillion listeners. Stupid heads, you're missing out. Gajillion? I'm surprised. I just wanted you to read over that. I didn't know you would actually say it. I figure why not read it out loud? It was good. And it's time for game balls, and I'm giving my game ball this week to Jordan West, running back for Washington and Jefferson. West scored six touchdowns. I, I guess I should really say all six touchdowns in uh, W&J's 44-36 win versus Case Western Reserve. The guy ran for two scores, caught four touchdown passes from Jacob Adams, but the last one put the dagger in it for the Presidents. Drew Saxton had thrown an interception for Case in a nine-point game with just under four minutes left, but that backed W&J up at its own two-yard line. Yeah, no big deal. West gets a great block up front, little help from a wide receiver, and he was gone. 98 yards for a touchdown, and the lead is out to 44-28. to Case came down and scored with a buck 24 left to cut the margin back to eight points, but it was too little too late. Adams had 181 rushing yards and 158 receiving yards in a big game for W&J, and that gets in my game ball. Pat, you know I love defense, and as we talk about my game ball, the clutch defense was everywhere this week with it was with RPI when Ithaca attempted a game-winning two-point conversion from the one-yard line. Maybe the only time we've seen something Philly specialist fail. The clutch defense was with St. John's when Sam Westby's 34-yard interception return touchdown snuffed Bethel's momentum. It was with Washington and Jefferson with its two late interceptions of Saxon. But if I can give game balls to teams, and let's be clear, these are imaginary, so I can. Mine go to the defenses of UW-Whitewater and Mary Harden-Baylor for shutting out their top 10 opponents. Oh, that's good. They're imaginary, so there's no improper benefit we have to worry about. That's good to know. We're probably not going to talk about this RPI-Ithaca game again, but uh, just to really briefly run through this, what happened is Ithaca scored a touchdown on a tipped ball with uh, on the final play of regulation to cut the lead to 10-9. to They had uh, Their extra point was blocked, but while the ball was still being batted around, RPI players came out on the field. They were called for, you know, premature celebration, too many men on the field, participation, whatever you want to call it. So with a second opportunity, Ithaca decides to go for two at home and they lost. 
Pat, the tipped ball maybe doesn't even do that catch justice either. It was one of those uh, guy comes in flying from the other side and just happened to be near the ball. And and as uh, the catch is not made, it kind of made me think of the there was like an old Nebraska play where it goes off the guy's foot. It was kind of like that, except it, it was off his hands. And it was uh, really an amazing catch to end the game for Ithaca. And then the block was this amazing moment for RPI. And then uh, the, the stop was also an amazing moment. Will Gladney with the touchdown catch. Now we've uh, really we'll get back on the track here, though. It's time to talk about teams on the rise, and I'm going to spotlight someone who rose, even if it isn't uh, extremely noticeable. any universe a national number five going to number six and winning is a big deal and should be rewarded but in this case there just isn't anywhere for frostburg state to go so the bobcats remain at number five but what happened is that gap got a whole lot tighter frostburg was 34 points behind brockport state last week (laughs) brockport state how that how's that for a classic name more than one whole spot per ballot but this week that gap was narrowed almost in half I went through and checked last week's ballots, and and Frostburg was ahead of Wesley on 20 of the 25 coming into this week. So I feel pretty good about our panel's performance here, especially when you consider that Wesley was ranked three spots higher than Frostburg in the coaches' poll. Let's discuss Saturday's Mary Harden-Baylor game and its effect on the number one spot in the poll. UW-Whitewater moved from eight to six in the overall poll, but I've had the Warhawks at four for a couple weeks, so there was nowhere for them to go on my ballot. The bigger intrigue for me was at number one where I put Mount Union's win over then number 14 on my ballot, John Carroll, up against Mary Harden-Baylor's win over then number five on my ballot, Harden-Simmons. And before we overcomplicate it, let's just say that I think if Mary Harden-Baylor and Mount Union played next week with the quarterback situation and the smothering defense at Mary Harden-Baylor, I think the crew would win. We're the champs until someone dethrones us is a valid line of thinking. Certainly, I like it in regards to the NFL. But as a voter, I try not to be too beholden to last year and instead assess what we're seeing now. So Mountain Union struggled a bit but found a way to beat John Carroll with the two defensive touchdowns. Mary Harden-Baylor won by four touchdowns, and that gets that includes getting no points on those three red zone trips. I now have John Carroll and Harden-Simmons ranked back-to-back, and so does the overall poll. So to me, the quality of opponent between Mountain Union and Mary Harden-Baylor is a wash. You could put those two games next to each other and say 23-10, 26-0. Anyway, you slice it. Mary Harden-Baylor's done enough to earn the top spot in my mind, unless you believe the champs hold until they're dethroned, in which case the number one vote won't change hands until deep into the playoffs, since Mountain Union probably won't even play another close game until then. I'll say this, though. That spot is up for evaluation each week. Mountain Union could take it back if Mary Harden-Baylor has an off week, or St. Thomas could earn it this week when they face the Johnnies, or maybe by the end of the year, UW-Whitewater could be that team on body of work, although that's probably a stretch. In any case, based on the 26-0 win against Harden-Simmons Saturday and everything that's come before, Mary Harden-Baylor is my new number one. I tell you, I've definitely been on the record. People who listen to this podcast and have for several years will have uh, will have heard this from me before. But I like it when there's some doubt as to who number one is. And often is the case when there have been years where UW-Whitewater would uh, have 24 first place votes and Mount Union would have one I would be the one who has the one just to you know I, I always want people to understand that there has to be some 
you know, some element of doubt as to who the number one team is. There have been very few times when there hasn't been some element of doubt in the last 15 years or so, basically ever since St. John's won that uh, 2003 Stag Bowl. Ever since then, there's been, there's been some doubt. But we went into that 2002 season, for example, and Mountain Union had already won two national titles in a row, and there was really no doubt that they were going to win it again, basically. They were wire-to-wire number one. So I love it when someone casts a single dissenting vote. This has been really interesting over the course of the last couple of weeks because we've basically gone from singular dissenting votes to now the point where we have six number one votes for Mary Harden Baylor. I think when you go back and look at, you know, what set uh, apart the Mary Harden Baylor Mountain Union Stag Bowl last year was the fact that, you know, Mary Harden Baylor just couldn't do diddly poo on offense. And if if you look at this year's Mary Harden Baylor um, body of work and decide that they've fixed that, then yeah, I think it's a reasonable belief that Mary Harden Baylor is better than Mountain Union right now and should be number one if you have a ballot. And if you don't believe that, and if you believe, like you said, that the champ is number one until the champ gets knocked off, then that's another way to go too. And look, there are 19 voters who who think Mountain Union still number one. There's a case to be made. Mountain Union's played a a tough opponent at this point in the season, which is often not the case. They won that game by a couple of touchdowns. So there's certainly case for, for Mount Union, but a lot of it is based on they played Mary Harden Baylor head to head last season in the stag bowl. They won that game 12 to zero. Neither team was very impressive on offense. Both the defenses were outstanding. Looks like they both have great defenses this year. You just have to, to if we project far enough you know and and that's what you're trying to do when you're when you're picking your number one team on your ballot if those two teams were were to meet who would win i think the quarterback play surprisingly it's not luke Porman, it's jace hammock with the denarian thomas package in there um and he ran thomas ran for three of the four touchdowns on saturday jace hammock ran for the other so they actually didn't throw any touchdown passes and barely had to throw the ball at all in the second half the quarterback play i think right now sets Mountain Union and Mary Harden Baylor apart. That's not to say that Mountain Union doesn't have the better quarterback, but the difference between the two teams is uh, is is you can envision it now. You if you if they played the way they played last season and they had this year's quarterback play, certainly you could see Mary Harden Baylor winning. I think you have to to take a close look at the Tommies too and see what they do this week again against a very good St. John's team. I really liked when you pointed out now that uh, John Carroll and Harden Simmons are back to back each other uh, in the poll. That's a good point that I had not really considered. Yeah, it's great. That means they each have an opponent that's essentially a wash. That wasn't flying. That was falling with style. My team that will take a fall this week in the poll is UW Oshkosh. And it's kind of an awkward fall at that because Oshkosh, again, reminded us that its offense is uh, at best, let's say, work in progress. Normally, I would have been totally on board with the Titans holding steady or only falling a spot or two for losing to a higher-ranked team on the road. But when Oshkosh failed to score, it surely reinforces the storyline that I suspect a lot of people think about UWO, is that they just don't have enough offense to contend for the WIAC title. Now that question is going to be whether they have enough offense to contend for second place as the Titans host UW Platteville this week. And as a voter, it gets interesting because Platteville has a win early in the season over East Texas Baptist, but a loss to Thomas Moore. And so you get some results that you can project out and try to figure out how teams compare between conferences. If Platteville's that team and if Platteville's not that team, 
the number two team in the WIAC? Is it Oshkosh? Is it lacrosse? It, uh, lacrosse has some results you can project down the road too with Illinois Wesleyan. It gets really interesting and, and sort of difficult as a voter uh, if the WIAC doesn't sort itself out the way we expect. Hey, where are you going to school next year? Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Big school. My team, that'll take a fall. To be honest, Harden-Simmons and Wesley, they didn't get dinged too much for losing to more highly ranked teams. That's probably how the polls should function. So let's go outside the top 25 to look at two teams who weren't able to make a move into the poll despite a team in front losing and falling out. Ithaca dropped out of the poll after the loss to RPI. UW Lacrosse and Central have the exact same number of points, 45 and 37, as they had last week, leaving the Eagles and Dutch again as the first two also receiving votes teams. Both won, but just barely, as lacrosse linebacker Rusty Murphy scooped a UW Stout fumble and returned it for a game-ending touchdown in overtime, while the Dutch edged Nebraska Wesleyan by six to go, 6-0. and I know I moved Central down for that on my ballot while I was less harsh with lacrosse and with Illinois Wesleyan for the games they almost lost. The Titans edged Carthage in two overtimes, by the way. I think there's a huge gap right now after the top 10 teams in the poll, everyone behind John Car- Carroll and Harden-Simmons, and teams can't afford to barely get by too often if they care to hold their spots. Whereas the team that moved into the poll, Johns Hopkins, had a, a resounding victory over a team that was ranked earlier in the season. For my off-the-beaten-path highlight, I'm looking at Grove City. A couple of years ago, the Wolverines found their coach in alumnus Andrew Donato. Last year, they found a quarterback, or two actually, and and then in the past couple of weeks, they found another quarterback. With uh, Randall Labry out because of surgery, it's now freshman John East who has stepped in. With seven seconds remaining in Saturday's game against Westminster of PA, East found sophomore Cody Gustafson in the end zone for a touchdown and a 36-33 win. It was the Wolverines' first win against Westminster since 2013, and I have no idea if I pronounced either of those quarterbacks' names correctly. Well, it was a convincing act if you were acting. For my off-the-beaten-path highlight, how about Anna Maria? Had just nine wins in nine seasons since the program got off the ground. They had scored just 36 points during its 0-5 start this season. So I know you gave some shine to Whittier in the open, but this is further off the beaten path, Pat. The AMCATs fell behind 17-0 at Castleton. They're 0-5. They have every reason to go, woe is me, to lay it down and quit in that game. And instead, they chipped away. They took a 24-17 lead with just less than 10 minutes to play. Then the Spartans come back and tie it with 231 left. And Anna Maria, remember, nine wins, nine seasons. They're on the road. They're losing early in this game. They had every reason to quit. They get a 32-yard kick return, three completions. They're in the end zone with 121 left. The defense holds, and the AMCATs have a rare win, though not even the rarest in New England. Totally fair, though, about being further off the beaten path. Uh, But my most surprising result of the week is the first win for the University of New England. Is this the rarest in New England? It's the newest, if nothing, if nothing else. The Nor'easters successfully executed the two-minute drill. Your two-minute drill begins now. And got into range for a game-winning field goal with five seconds left to defeat Curry 44-42. It was a surprise to me because I thought Curry would finish in the middle of the pack in the CCC. But uh, now the Colonels are 2-4 and four with wins against Dean and Anna Maria and a loss to a college football team that not only didn't win any games last year, they didn't play any games last year. So... A, congratulations to UNE on the win in front of the home crowd. And B, hey, just congratulations on finishing the two-minute drill and getting into the range for a game-winning field goal with a team that is basically a bunch of freshmen. For my most surprising result, Concordia-Moorhead's only losses this season have been against UW-Whitewater and St. Thomas, both ranked 
among the top six teams in the country. Gustavus Adolphus had only beat Martin Luther, which is not among the top six teams in the country. So naturally, the Gusties beat the Cobbers by two touchdowns for their second win of the season, holding Concordia to less than 200 yards of offense, something neither the Warhawks nor Tommies did, though both came pretty close. Most confusingly, the Cobbers rushed for just 20 yards on 23 carries. Two weeks ago against Hamlin, they racked up 393 rushing yards. Yeah, that was one of those games when I looked at that score, I dug into the box score just to make sure that the home and away team weren't reversed. That was really puzzling. For my stat of the week, Manny Romero had a game-high 10 catches for 272 yards and two touchdowns for Norwich, but uh, Merchant Marines scored 20 points in the final 11 minutes of the game and rallied to win 33-24. Romero did most of his damage in the first 46 minutes of the game, however. After the final touchdown, Romero was targeted nine times by Norwich and caught just two passes for a total of two yards. So that's really two stats of the week off the same guy in the same rundown. For my stat of the week, I'm not sure I've ever seen anything like Brockport's 17 tackles for losses against Hartwick. Tim Terry had four and a half of those, and the Golden Eagles defense came into the game allowing a national best negative five rushing yards per game. Uh, They certainly gave Hartwick trouble rushing. Hartwick finished with negative 37 yards rushing on 27 carries and greatly helped by those 17 tackles for losses. It's really hard to improve on an average of minus 5.3 rushing yards allowed per game, but uh, Brockport did it. Your categories have become tiresome. Now's the time on Sprockets where we dance. Now's the time in the podcast where we go to Twitter. And this week's Twitter question comes from Chad Hammonds, who is at Hammonds, and he asks, Should all of D3FB, thanks for the hashtag, do something to commemorate John Gillardi for his contributions to Division Three athletes and culture? Hashtag ATN podcast. First of all, Keith, I love this concept, somewhat similar to all the Major League Baseball teams retiring Jackie Robinson's 42 number some years ago. I think at the very least, all of college football at a minimum should have a moment of silence on Saturday in John's memory. John would have totally hated this, but it definitely should be done. Yeah, he is the all-time winningest coach in college football history, not Division Three history, college football history. But pretty soon, whether college football likes it or not, John's way is going to be the way when they do away with tackling in practice or tackling entirely. Talk about a man ahead of his time. Thanks for the question, Chad. Don't forget that uh, you can ask us a question and get it on the podcast as well by hitting us up on Sunday night. Hey, you know what? This week we forgot to program the automated tweet that goes out in the middle of the evening on uh, Sunday, and Chad sent us something anyway. You the man, Chad. Thank you. Appreciate the thought. Every thought of yours is a friend of mine. We did touch a little bit on the shoes game in the open. The shoes, of course, the battle for Myron Claxton's uh, bronze shoes. Between Occidental and Whittier, Whittier won that game, snapping a 33-game losing streak. But, uh, you know, we talked a lot about Occidental last year when they didn't uh, play the last uh, or six games on their schedule. They suited up 43 guys. A bunch of them are freshmen, obviously. But uh, one of them, uh, DJ Adams, is a guy who uh, stood out already pretty good as a freshman. Occidental has got an opportunity to kind of work its way back into something respectable in the Skyac. I wish they and they were a great team, and they were a playoff team in the mid-2000s, so we'd love to see it happen, and it's definitely a place where you can win. 
I'm going to say we misread the data from the season opening Huntington-Guilford game, the one that was called with 13 minutes left with the Hawks up 58-48. I think we did the math and projected it to a 74-61 final if the game would have been played in full. And we thought we were dealing with uh, most of the two of the most high-powered offenses in the South. The Hawks have since lost four straight. Since that game, they had nearly won. And Guilford beat Methodist, then they lost three straight, including a 63-34 beatdown from Randolph-Macon this past Saturday. So it wasn't high-powered offenses we were seeing back in week one. It was bad defense. The second game I was at on Saturday, on Saturday night, was at Redlands between Redlands and Chapman. Uh, at one point in the game, Redlands passed up uh, an opportunity at a 52-yard field goal attempt, which I would have appreciated seeing because the kicker for Redlands is uh, Nathan Hurley High. He was our second-team All-West Region kicker last year. Couldn't quite squeeze him onto the All-America team last year as a junior. But I also need to remember who kicks on grass because now that uh, turf is the predominant surface, grass is fairly rare. But mostly, I brought this up so I could do this. Pronunciation 101. Budavistic. Monon Belt. Budavistic. Muhlenberg. Gallardi. German Ario. Gabley. Hurley High. Yeah, that's how you pronounce Hurley High. It's not just the pronunciation on this guy. It's the spelling, too. You would not really think of Hurley High when you see it spelled H-I-E-R-L-I-H-Y. Pat, I'm very surprised to see your alma mater, Catholic, at 0-6. We had a great interview with Mike Gutilius on the May offseason podcast, and the vibes were good. And we figured that leaving the ODAC for the new Mac would benefit the Cardinals. But they really struggled to score, held the 12 points or less four times this season. The latest, Saturday's 24-0 shutout loss at WPI. Yeah, young team right now, and it, it's definitely showing. It's not been good. It's also been a tough year at William Patterson, which is in its first year under new coach Dustin Johnson and has lost 21 consecutive games. Obviously, not all of those under Johnson. Patterson scored 17 points in its opener against FDU Florham, but they've scored just 13 points in the four games since, including a 16-zip shutout by previously winless Kane on Saturday. We have a standings page on D3Football.com. Did you know? I just wanted to do that. Oddities from that standings page. There are six one and four teams in the NAC and ACC, and there are five four and one teams in the CCIW, which I think is maybe the, maybe it doesn't sound weird when you say it out loud, but it certainly looks weird on the standing page when almost everyone in one conference has the same record. Uh, the OAC, by the way, two five and O teams, three at four and one, and there are four three and three teams plus two three and teams in the pack. So basically, everyone in the pack except for I guess W and J. And uh, and Case Western Reserve has three losses. Keith, it's a good thing that I uh, mute the uh, I, I mute my microphone generally when you're talking because I really burst out laughing when you uh, when you threw that out there. I bet a lot of people don't know we have a standings page on d3football.com. By the way, we talked a couple weeks ago about a uh, an extra down being added to the Elmhurst Carroll game. We had uh, looks like we had one between McMurray and Westminster of Missouri on Saturday in which the uh, officials shorted Westminster a down on the two-yard line and uh, elicited a uh, turnover on downs on uh, on third down. Obviously, early in the game, and uh, Westminster had plenty of time to uh, compensate for that and not let it lose them the game, although it did turn out, of course, that uh, McMurray won that game by the score of 19-14. to 14. Halfway through the season, Pat, there are a handful of teams with surprisingly good records that top 25 voters aren't buying in on yet primarily because they've been winning, but not against really good teams. A few will get opportunities to do that next week, and we'll go further into depth on that on Friday's podcast when we look ahead 
at all the games in week seven. But quickly, Montclair State and Salisbury both unbeaten at five and zero, oh, but neither's played the other, uh, or they another they've also not played Rowan Frostburg or Wesley. So they look really looks really nice five and zero, oh, but you haven't played the meat of that NJAC schedule. Same deal with Saint Olaf. Uh, they're 5-0, and but they uh, have Bethel. Then they're at St. John's, at St. Thomas, and Concordia-Moorhead later this season. Uh, Alfred is also 4-1. and They get Brockport this week. So uh, there are a bunch of teams with uh, records that are 4-1 and or better. Kind of surprising. Uh, a lot of them haven't played the good teams yet. Marietta, 5-0. Uh, and Still got a bunch of good OAC teams to play. Simpson from the American Rivers Conference. Not the IIAC anymore. Puget Sound, Millsaps, uh, Bethel. We know uh, their record is pretty good, but they just picked up a loss to St. John's this week. MIT, 6-0. Mount St. Joseph, uh, Adam Turr's favorite local team. They are also off to a pretty good start. So a bunch of those teams as voters, we got to start keeping an eye on, but we you can't move them into the top 25 because all four and one records aren't necessarily created equal. Before we go, one more word about John Gallardi. If you want to read more about the impact John had on St. John's students, St. John's football, St. John's in general, go look up at John Sharkman on Twitter. That's the nom de tweet of Tom Lineman. He was the quarterback on the 2000 Stag Bowl team. He spent a good amount of time on Sunday posting his memories of John. He did the same on Instagram, too, so if you're on there, check it out. Did he post pictures of the uh, of the note cards? He was talking about note cards earlier on Sunday. The one I saw was, uh, auto- it was autographed or he'd written him a note, and it was him, it was Tom and, and John... Uh, Pretty sure it's in the stag bowl, but it may be. It may have just been a regular season game from that uh, that magical 2000 season. And it says, uh, you know, to Tom, you're the best quarterback ever, John. Like it's very very direct, but also like, who wouldn't want that uh, as their memory? And this was D3Football.com around the nation podcast number 210, season 12, episode 11 released on October 8th, 2018. You know, Keith, we've only done 36 minutes of podcast. Do you want to talk some more? Nope. Spare the listeners' ears. Maybe they're just pulling into the garage at work. I, I love when a podcast goes off when I'm getting ready to part. We will, I will let you know that uh, I chatted with Mike Maynard. He's the head coach at Redlands. He will be our featured interview on Friday's podcast. So uh, check back in for that. Thanks for listening to this one. And, uh, of course, keep an eye on the rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like our podcast, please consider rating it in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. That will help other football fans find it. Leave comments on the blog page as well. The executive producer of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at DJMentos.com. Thanks to our guest, Mike Neal, for his time on the open of our show. And, of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter. Use that D3FB hashtag, for goodness sakes, people. I'm at D3Football, and Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. You can find it in a menu somewhere near the standings page. You can join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. Well, if you don't do the did you know, it's not as funny. I figured people might have heard it at some point in the previous 
40 or so podcasts because I think that uh, text has been in this uh, copyright slash wrap-up text for a couple of years now. All true. At some point in one draft of this podcast, Keith, I had mentioned not only churches and job interviews, but sports bars at places where I see Johnny's. I don't remember when I edited that out, but uh, the sports bar reference is awesome. I was... Uh, at, uh, at, at the one that's down the street from me, which is far too close to my house, by the way, and uh, was telling somebody about what I do, and the guy said, oh, yeah, I went to St. John's. How about that John Gagliardi? And I'm like, oh, my God. Did you really go to St. John's? I think we have to revoke yeah. your uh, we have to revoke your red card right there. Yeah, yeah, that's like the number one, you know, at least pronounce it right. Thank you so much, everybody.